This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Good evening, everyone. It's very nice to be here again after quite a while. Um, welcome and really thank you all for coming. So we're here to talk about the three characteristics Sometimes they, they're just left as that, the three characteristics. And sometimes they are more qualified, the three characteristics of something. And I'd like to open our conversation today with a little bit about some thoughts about terminology. So, first of all, these phrase. In Pali, the phrase is ti sankata lakhana. Ti means three, sankata is a key word here, and lakhana is, is a word that means characteristic or mark. And we, so you might see this phrase often translated as the three characteristics of existence. I think this translation is a bit misleading because the use of the word existence, kind of um, existence is, is a word that gives, moves us to the branch of philosophy that is called ontology the branch of philosophy that investigates what there is out there. And that's not what early Buddhist, early Buddhist tradition is focused on that much. Rather, it's much more concerned with things as they appear in our experience. Not things are there, but things as they are experienced. In other words, the focus is on phenomena as they are represented in our consciousness and as we perceive these phenomena through our senses. So a better translation here would be the three characteristics of phenomena. What kind of phenomena? Phenomena that are conditioned, sankhata. And that's because a fundamental principle in, in Buddhist thought is that all our experiential world, our, the experience phenomena that we perceive, are all conditioned, constructed, composed, and that's the meaning of the word sankhata. It means that things, all these things, all these phenomena, depend upon lots of various conditions and causes. They arise because of all kinds of conditions. They are constructed by our cognitive apparatus. So the Pali term that we're going to talk about today means the three marks or the three characteristics of conditioned phenomena. And what is a characteristic or mark in this context? Lakhana, the word is lakhana. By Characteristic Buddhist tradition here means something that is necessarily connected with some phenomenon. And because the connection is necessary, that quality gives us insight into the nature of that phenomenon that it qualifies. For example, heat is a characteristic of fire, but not of water. It is invariably connected with fire. It's of the nature of fire to be hot. 
The heat of water, on the other hand, depends upon various other conditions, like the heat of the sun or the presence of a stove, etc., etc. Heat is connected with water, but the connection is not necessary. So it doesn't really tell us anything essential about the nature of water, as it does about the nature of fire. And from knowing something about the nature of fire that is hot, we can start gleaning a lot of other things, like how fire works and what we can do with it. For example, cook our food, be warm, be aware not to get too close to it, and so on. So this is the, the um, meaning of the word characteristic here. In order to refer to the qualities of conditioned phenomena from which we can deduce about their nature. These are the characteristics. These are qualities that are, that are always connected with phenomena as we experience them. Not with things out there, but with the impressions, the, the phenomena that are represented in our consciousness. So it, these, these characteristics will give us some insight into the nature of our experience. And from that, we can start learning about how things work and what we can do about them. And things here, sometimes we, we, you will see that I, I'll use interchangeably the words things and phenomena, but let's not confuse things as something like ontological entities out there. We're talking about the phenomena that construct our experiential world. And that's the focus of Buddhist thought, at least in its early phase. So let's think about the, this teaching of the three characteristic within the context of Buddhist meditation. What's the place of this teaching? What's its relationship with Buddhist meditation? Buddhism comes to consider meditation by way of two different but complementary aspects. And these are calm, samatha, and insight, vipassana. Calm meditation is geared more towards the cultivation of deep states of concentration, samadhi, which are achieved through states of consciousness that are known as jhanas. Insight meditation, on the other hand, is geared more towards the cultivation of wisdom, panya. Now, according to a basic principle of Buddhist psychology, our minds are fundamentally pure and still and clear, but have become stained by the operation of specific unwholesome qualities, and these are the, the defilements, the kilesas. And the goal of Buddhist meditation is to bring to an end the operation of these defilements. So we need to know how they work. How do we do that? The basic method is to restore to the mind something of this fundamental stillness and calm. This clarity of mind provides the opportunity for seeing into the operation of the defilements, into the mind's true nature, and therefore into the way things are those things that make up our experience. Seeing that, really, is 
seeing the Dharma. And if you can do that, then you're pretty close to awakening. Now, you, 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 can, you might find in various texts, various uh, Buddhist writings and secondary sources, um, that the relationship between these two traditions of meditation is not so simple. In fact, there are all kinds of Buddhist schools that developed through the years that um, came to treat them as actually kind of rival traditions. But regardless of the relationship between these two traditions of meditation, the, the, the basic method holds quite um, good in general, and that is that first one clears and steals the mind through the techniques of calm meditation and then turns towards the cultivation of wisdom, panya. And that is because Buddhist thought, Buddhist tradition is really um, interested, particularly in the transition from the jhanas to a specific jhana that's called, that, that basically is equal, equivalent with awakening, a jhana that's called bodhi. And to get to that, to, to undergo this transition, to this shift from jhanas to jhana to bodhi jhana, one has to experience this understanding of the nature of things. And what is that? That is really understanding of the Four Noble Truths. But not as theory, really experiencing directly the Four Noble Truths about how things are. And how are things? They are characterized by three aspects. They are impermanent, anicca. They are unsatisfactory, they are dukkha, and they are not self. Understanding that, directly seeing it, is seeing dhamma. And these are the three characteristics. It's not a coincidence that they belong to a series on Buddhist fundamentals. It's one of the basic teachings and the text emphasize these three aspects emphatically. And they appear, for example, in these renowned verses from the Dhammapada. That's really the stock formula of the three characteristics, and it goes as follows. Sabe Sankhara Anicca. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. Seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. Sabe Sankhara Dukkha. All conditioned phenomena are unsatisfactory. Seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. Sabe Dhamma Anatta. All things are not self. Seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to two interesting points here. First, you'll notice that there is a difference in the text between the first two characteristics that are related to all conditioned phenomena. All, all sankharas. But the third characteristic of not-self, anatta, is described with regards to all things, 
all dharmas. Why is this difference between conditioned phenomena and all things altogether? I'll go back to this point a little bit later. Now, another interesting point here is this phrase, seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. It's really interesting. What does it mean to become disenchanted with suffering? Did you ever think that you were enchanted with suffering? <laughs> so this question that we will also go back to towards the end of the talk. And what is everything? All things, often all these phenomena, everything in the word in, in Pali is sabba. There's a straightforward passage in the Sabha Sutta of the Samyutta Nikaya that clarifies what everything is. And it goes as follows. What is everything, monks, the Buddha says? It is the eye and visual forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and tangibles, mind and dhammas. This, monks, is called everything. Whoever should claim thus, having rejected this version of everything, I shall define another, his words are unfounded. Why is it so? Because, monks, there is nothing beyond this scope. There is nothing beyond this scope of the senses and the sense data. Always remember that in Buddhist psychology, the mind is one of the senses. And so mental phenomena are included as well in that, in, in the spectrum of our sense data. And this goes exactly to the point with which I opened just a few minutes ago, that Buddhist teaching, and as part of that, the teaching of the three characteristics, is not concerned so much with what exists in the world, per se, but rather with how things are as they appear in consciousness and as they are perceived through the senses. So let's think about now and um, consider these three characteristics. The first one is anicca, impermanence. The characteristic of impermanence implies that all conditioned phenomena or processes, really, whether they are mental or material, these phenomena that make up our experiential world are transient. They are instead of flux. They change. They change all the time. Buddhism strongly emphasizes the experience of change as an inevitable part of life. By defining change as a characteristic, remember what characteristic is? By defining impermanence, change, as a lakhana characteristic, what Buddhism basically tells us is it's of the nature of all phenomena to undergo change. Why? Because according to Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist thought, everything is the result of multiple conditions. Everything is the product of multiple causes and conditions, and therefore, everything is dependently originated. And here you have a connection to another very fundamental Buddhist teaching, dependent origination. Now, these causes and conditions themselves are not static or enduring. They themselves are simply prior aspects of the same ceaseless process of becoming. Now, it's all very nice, but we don't really 
pay attention to the changing nature of things so much. In fact, we even prefer to avoid thinking about it most of the time. But then we experience pain when we are confronted with a rapid change of things. When a job ends, when a relationship runs its course, when we or somebody we hold dear gets sick, or, you know, in general, when we are faced with what Shakespeare calls the shuffling off this mortal coil. But there is more to um, the Buddhist teaching of impermanence. It's not only that things change from the past to the present to the future. Rather, they are in constant process of change. They change from moment to moment. And this is the, really the peculiar thing about Buddhist understanding of impermanence. It's this analysis of change in terms of the rise and fall of all mental and physical events. It's a, it's a constant rise and fall that we observe when we bring mindfulness to our experience. Right? That's what we do in meditation. When we turn our attention to every breath, every thought, every sound. And then we discover that every moment of our being encompasses becoming and passing away. There's not, not really so, so much being, but becoming and passing away each moment. It's perhaps one of the big paradoxes of meditation that the stiller and, and calmer and quieter the mind becomes in meditation, the more aware we become of how things are constantly changing. Right? The busier, more distracted the mind is, the more we kind of drift through life on our automatic pilot mode under this impression of stability and, and permanence. So from its beginning, Buddhism sees the impermanence of sentient experience in terms of the rise and fall of all mental and physical events. And the suttas has a, an interesting elaboration on that point. They... Um, state that conditioned phenomena are of the nature of origination and dissolution. And on many occasions, they also add another thing. Change of what endures. For example, this following sentence that I'm going to read to you from the Samyutta Nikaya. Origination of the body is evident. Its dissolution is evident. Its change of what endures is evident. Origination of feeling is evidence. It's dissolution, it's evident. It's change of what endures is evident. Origination of conceptualization, and so on. And, and you will see that this statement is said about five groups of phenomena, which are body, feeling, conceptualization, mental formations, and consciousness. And these are the five aggregates the five khandas. Origination of these phenomena is evident. Their dissolution is evident. Their change of what endures is evident. What does that mean? The five khandas represent themselves a totality formula. This is a totality of everything 
that makes up our experience. It's these groups of phenomena and the objects that we perceive through this spectrum of phenomena. That's our experience. That's our world. And there's nothing beyond this scope, remember. For all of these phenomena, their origination is evident, their dissolution is evident, and their change of what endures is evident. So that means that the Buddhist doctrine of change really does amount to a theory of universal flux. Because it doesn't really just state that something arises, exists for some time in a more or less static form, and then dissolves. But it does say that conditioned phenomena change between their arising and falling. They change all the time, with no static phase in between. Change of what endures. Even when they endure, they change. Now, this is a really interesting point, because later Buddhist thought, Abhidhamma, for those of you who um, heard some of that, about that, the Abhidhamma tradition really elaborated extensively on this analysis of, of change and constructed a fascinating doctrine of momentariness. This later thinking, what it does, very briefly, it atomizes phenomena temporally by dissecting them into a succession of discrete, brief, momentary events that pass out of existence as soon as they arise. And each event like that conditions a new event of its kind that proceeds immediately after that. And the result is an uninterrupted continuum of causally connected momentary events. They succeed each other so fast that to us, this, they seem as to constitute kind of a temporally extended continuum. But the truth is, is that it's just a succession of really, really, really short-lived events that rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. Now, it's a really radical theory, but it might not seem so radical because we kind of, kind of got used to um, thinking about Buddhism in terms of momentariness, you know, the, the mindfulness of the present moment and all these discussions. But in fact, the doctrine of momentariness, even the, the term itself, moment or momentariness, doesn't really appear in its own, in the early layers of Buddhist thought. There is no textual evidence for this transition from talking about a general principle of change to a very, very schematic um, doctrine of, of the moment. But the change does happen. There is such a shift. It's interesting to kind of follow it, but there is no one text or a group of texts that will show you the transition from anicca to momentariness. But it does take place in the tradition, and it has very interesting implications, both theoretical and, and practical. Because it, it kind of implies a whole new um, notion of experience. It's not that our experience is found in some container, existential container. Our experience is constructed in time. It's kind of a Bergsonian phenomenological um, notion of being in time, or rather becoming in time, if you want to take the extreme Buddhist view. But before we move on, let's not misinterpret the principle of anicca 
as if he denies the principle of continuity. That would be totally wrong because Buddhism holds a very, very strong principle of continuity. And what is that? What accounts for continuity in Buddhism? Any guesses? Karma. Of course there's continuity. There is karma. And what explains karma? The teaching of dependent origination. So, extreme impermanence, but still continuity. Let's move on to talking about the second characteristic, dukkha. That's my favorite. Pain. It really is the starting point of Buddhism. Um, it's, I, I always kind of uh, I like to talk about it with people who do, don't so mu- know so much about Buddhism in other circles, and they always come and say, "Oh yeah, nirvana." If there is one word that one should uh, relate to Buddhism, it's not nirvana; it's dukkha. Right? The summary statement of the first of the four noble truths, the truth about dukkha, is as follows: This is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness, dying, sorrow, grief, pain, unhappiness, and unease. Being united with what is not liked is suffering. Wow. Separation from what is liked is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. Don't we all know that? In short, the five aggregates of grasping are suffering. Hey, but we just noticed that the five aggregates of, of, of grasping are everything. There is. It's the totality of what there is. There is nothing beyond that scope. And now we're told that all these five aggregates of grasping are suffering. Hmm. So the starting point of Buddhist thought is the reality of suffering. Now, it means, by the way, that there is no need in Buddhist thought to explain the existence of suffering in the face of God's omnipotence and boundless love. I mean, there there is no problem of evil in Buddhist thought because for Buddhism, suffering is simply a fact of being in the world. And frankly, beings themselves must take responsibility for their suffering. It might sound quite bleak, but actually from a Buddhist perspective, it's a message of hope. Because it also means that when the dharma is made an integral part of our life, we can experience the cessation of suffering. Right? There are four truths. That also means that there is no need for a savior. Interesting Um, differences between Judeo-Christian thought and Buddhism. In any case, sooner or later, in some form or another, beings are confronted with suffering. The term dukkha, which is normally translated as suffering, can also mean pain or anguish. It actually uh, derives from a word in Sanskrit that means uh, something that squeaks, like a wheel that squeaks and is not in the right place. You get the sense? Something that is not working well. So there are three main aspects, 
for suffering, three main levels where, where we can consider suffering, dukkha. The first is very self-evident, suffering in the sense of physical or mental pain. We all know what that means. But even when there is nothing that is causing us particular pain of that sort, even when we are enjoying ourselves, things are always liable to change. What we were enjoying may be removed from us, or something that is not quite as pleasant may manifest itself. In fact, everything we experience is changing, right? Moment by moment. That is the working of Anicca. Everything, even pleasant experiences, are subject to change and therefore unreliable. If we put our hope for final happiness in those phenomena, in those things, then we are bound to be disappointed. Now, when we perceive the reality of this state of affairs really directly, when we find that things that previously gave us pleasure are tainted and no longer pleasing like they used to be, we kind of start realizing that the world as a whole is a place of constantly shifting and unstable conditions where we might never actually feel entirely satisfied. What happens then? If you want to know what happens then, then go back to the Buddha's life story. Remember the Buddha? Before he became a Buddha, he was Siddhartha Gautama. And that's exactly what happened to Siddhartha Gautama after he encountered those four fundamental sites of um, a sick person, old person, a body, a body, dead body, and a wandering ascetic. He grew disillusioned by his life of pleasure at a palace, right? The texts describe how on the night of his great departure, he roamed the palace, and the luxuries that had once pleased him seemed to him grotesque. And the texts are very, very descriptive. They describe how he saw musicians and dancing girls that had fallen asleep and were sprawled about, snoring and sputtering, really ugly descriptions. And Siddhartha couldn't find anything enjoyable anymore. He could not but reflect on the old age, disease, and death that would overtake them, all these beautiful people. And he then realized that he just can't go on living his normal life. So what did he do? He left. He went forth. We're not going to do that, hopefully, right now. But try just to think about what it means really to directly experience, understand this level of dukkha. Dukkha is conditions. Dukkha is dependent origination. Let me suggest for you a few other ways to think about it. We might... Think about it, for example, in the following way. Dukkha is this illusionary safety net that we build for ourselves. We really build it. We invest a lot of energy in it. Because we think that this net will catch us when we fall in those scary moments of, of our mortal life. What is Dukkha? Dukkha is money, it's family, friends, fame. This is Dukkha. We think it makes us secure and content. But 
how close does dukkha have to really come before in one way or another it impinges upon our sense of well-being? Money? When we don't have it, we worry. When we have it, we're afraid we'll lose it. Or we might get caught up in thoughts about how to increase it. Job? Creates the illusion that it will last forever until it doesn't. Or we are not satisfied with our, with our job, so we change jobs only to find out that the new job is actually worse than the other one. Social network. We th- might think that, you know, as many, if, if we get more Facebook likes or Twitter followers, we'll be happy. But really, how enduring are these interactions and relations? And then there's family. Okay, so you think, at least I have my family, right? My spouse, my children. But what if our spouse leaves us? And what if the bonds with our family get thinner as the years go by? And what about the fact that we have to let go of our children at some point? Actually letting go all the time. So we are part of a world compounded of multiple conditions. A world of dependent origination in which pain and pleasure, happiness and suffering are really in multiple ways bound up together. And to realize that, we can't just think theoretically about it. We have to experience it and, and, and get this and penetrate this analysis of our individual experience. And what is the model for analyzing our individual experience? It's the understanding of our individual experience in terms of not-self, anatta. And that brings us to the third characteristic, anatta. In Sanskrit, it's anatman. anatman. So it, you get the sense that it's a negation, a compound that is a negation of atman. Now, a bit about the context here. It's really important to understand what this is about. The Buddhist critique of the notion of self, of atman, is rooted in a very, very specific historical context and was initially directed towards particular contemporary views of the self, views that were developed by the Brahminical tradition. You know, the Brahminism, the the tradition that really is the um, antecedent for Hinduism. And the early Brahminical texts, specifically texts known as the Upanishads, part of the Vedas, the Upanishads explore some basic questions like whom or to whom or what the various experiences and parts of a being explore, who or what controls these experiences, and what is the ultimate nature of a being? This is a really, really fundamental question that the Upanishads explore. And the standard term for a being's ultimate nature in the Upanishads is Atman, a Sanskrit word that means I or self. Now, according to this Upanishadic worldview, the self, in its ultimate nature, is an ungraspable entity. It's this inner controller, the undestructible. And as such, it's beyond suffering. Moreover, the Upanishads even say that this ultimate nature of a being, the Atman, is equivalent to the ultimate nature of the universe of the principle of being itself, Brahman, 
So Atman equals Brahman. And that is the highest truth, and whoever understands that is released from suffering, according to Upanishads. And this is the notion of Atman that the Buddha rejects. Really, really important point in Buddhist thought. Now, the rejection of this worldview is made in, within, remember, this particular context of Buddhist thought, the interest in really understanding what is going on there in our world, what makes it what it is, how it works. In the collection of the sutras, the Buddha's discourses, the most important analysis of individual experience that provides a, an answer to this question, what is going on? <laughs> the most important analysis is the analysis in terms of the five aggregates. Form, feeling, conceptualization or recognition, mental formations and consciousness, the five groups of phenomena. There is nothing else besides. This is our world. Now, the question then arises whether any of these five phenomena can qualify as the self, as the Atman. Can it? Buddhism has lots of arguments against that possibility. I'm not going to go through all of them, but just to point um, to two of them. One main argument used in Buddhist texts to show that this cannot be the case goes against the Upanishadic um, characterization of the self as the inner controller. It's based on the claim that we have no ultimate control over really any of the five aggregates. And consider, for example, this Samyutta passage. Body is not the self. If body were a self, then it might be that it would not lead to sickness. Then it might be possible to say, let my body be like this, let my body be like that. But since body is not self, it leads to sickness. And it's not possible to say, let my body be like this or let my body be like that. And the same can be said about any of the other four aggregates. In other words, it's simply <coughs> ridiculous to take things that are bound up with change and over which we have no control, really, as the self. Another important argument against the Upanishadic idea of the Atman is the idea that any of the five aggregates can be qualified as a self because they are impermanent, right? And by that token, they are dukkha. We just saw that previously, right? The Buddha says, therefore, monks, all body feeling, recognition, mental formations, conscious awareness, whatsoever, whether past, present, or future, whether gross or subtle, inferior or refined, far or near, should be seen by means of a clear understanding, as it really is. As this is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. So, Buddhism doesn't deny the notion of uh, the or existence of the self as such. Because that would amount to nihilism, an extreme view that Buddhism rejects along with the other extreme view of essentialism, right? We're talking about the middle way. The Dharma is the middle way between two extremes. 
So it doesn't deny the notion of self or the existence of self per se. Therefore, it's misleading to, to translate anatta as no self. There is self, but it's illusionary. We should translate it as not self. Things as they truly are are not self. What is rejected, remember, is this notion of the self as enduring, as this unchanging essence that underlies individual experience, as this eternal bliss. That is rejected. Because things are impermanent, and by that token, they are unsatisfactory. And by that token, they cannot be the self. And really what Buddhism does, it asks us, where precisely in our experience do we ever see the self? Really, when you think about it. What we find when we observe our experience, when we bring mindfulness to our experience, as we do in meditation, is always some particular sense datum, some particular feeling, some particular desire, some particular thought or sound or impression. We never actually see or observe this I that is having these experiences. Who is this I? Where is it? It's impossible to conceive this I because it's impossible to conceive consciousness without the objects of consciousness. Right? The I cannot see itself. But it's okay to talk about the I as a linguistic usage, right? It's a conventional label. This This linguistic usage and the fact that there is continuity, as we said, that connects our experiences, these mislead us into thinking that there is an I apart from or behind or beyond our experiences. But the fact that experiences are causally connected, and they are causally connected, is explained not by reference to a self that underlies experiences, but by examining the nature of causal connectedness. And that examination is done by the doctrine of dependent origination. And then it's developed much, much further in the Abhidhamma. To conclude, then, Sabe Sankara Anicca, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, Sabe Dhamma Anatta. Our world, Buddhism tells us, is what we experience. And it's a world of change, of process. It's constructed, it's composed, it's compounded by our cognizing apparatus, really. Our body and mind. And our cognizing apparatus, along with our mental and psychological and physical conditions, and linguistic usage, create a conceptual framework that kind of predisposes us. It's, it's part of how our system works. It cannot be otherwise. It's bound to be like that. Our, we are conditioned to operate like that, to understand personal identity in terms of an I that exists as an autonomous individual who has various experiences. But it's an illusion. We have to see through the illusion. The vagaries of this misleading conceptual framework lie at the root of the fund- fundamental problem of human experience, dukkha.
These vagaries are sometimes conscious, but mostly unconscious. We're not aware of them. We may be even kind of spellbound by them or enchanted by them. In the sense that in our ordinary life, really, when you think about it, we operate a lot of, a lot of the time in an, this automatic pilot mode and really willing to go along with the fact that we are suffering without really inquiring into the root cause of this condition. Right? We don't really want to think about it. Insight into the three characteristics, what it does is shake us up, awakens us from this slumber of acceptance of dukkha so that we become disenchanted with suffering. We don't want to accept it anymore. It motivates us to get to the root of dukkha and to face it rather than just drift through life accepting it. And that is the meaning of that phrase. Seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. Now, remember, sabe sankara anicca, sabe sankara dukkha, sabe dhamma anatta. Why is this difference? Because there is a very interesting thing implied here. Yes, all conditioned phenomena are impermanent and suffering. But there is something that is not constructed. There is something that is not conditioned. There is something that we call the unconditioned. And what is that? What is it? Nibbana. Nibbana is the unconditioned. Nibbana is that phenomenon that is not constructed, that does not rise, that is not the result of any other external conditions, that does not cease. Nibbana is just ease. But where is the room for Nibbana in this totality formula of the five aggregates? Right? We say that the five aggregates, this is the, the, this is the totality of everything. Beyond, there's nothing beyond that scope. Where is Nibbana within that framework of the five aggregates, really? There is no room to situate Nibbana. That's quite disconcerting. Where is it? So, later Buddhist thinking develops yet another way to analyze experience not just in terms of the five aggregates, but in terms of dharmas, events, mental and physical events that make up our experience as they appear in consciousness, as all these experiences appear in consciousness. And Nibbana is a dharma. Within that analysis, Nibbana has its place. Nibbana is a dharma. And there, in this totality formula of the, of the Dharma theory, there really is nothing beyond that scope. There are only Dharmas. But all Dharmas, including the unconditioned Dharma, are not self, anatta. Even Ibana, 
is not self. It's not dukkha. It's not impermanent. And it's not self. Sabe sankara anicca. Sabe sankara dukkha. Sabe dhamma anatta. May the teaching of the three characteristics inspire your cultivation of wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.